children. And like uh, Nick said earlier, this is not our normal setup, um, but the uh, Lord's been kind to us to give us space uh, as we renew our normal space. And, uh, and I think we're, we're making pretty good progress, and hopefully uh, maybe next Sunday is our last time in here. I don't want to jinx it, but, uh, but uh, I'm hopeful of that. Let's open up our Bibles to Second uh, Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 3, and we're actually going to look at the end of 3 into chapter 4, but Second Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And we'll work our way down to verse 8 of chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent or complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. As we were just singing uh, that song, Speak, O Lord, I I was caught uh, by the second verse which reads, cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see your majestic love, and what is that? And authority, right? Authority. Authority is a bad word these days, isn't it? It's a bad word. It's a word that, that, that strikes all sorts of thoughts in our culture. 37 years ago, John Stott, you might not know that name, but John Stott was one of the key leaders of the evangelical movement in Europe. He wrote this about authority. Seldom, if ever in its history, has the world witnessed such a self-conscious revolt against authority. All the accepted authorities, 
family, school, university, state, church, Bible, Pope, and God are all being challenged. Anything that savors of establishment, that is of entrenched privilege or unassailable power, is being scrutinized and opposed. Sounds almost like today, and yet that was 37 years ago. That was true then. How much more so is that true for us now? We live in an age, we live in a culture, don't we? Which not only resists authority, but is suspicious of its moral goodness altogether. Authority equals evil in many of our eyes. And the spirit of this age has also affected us. I mean, to speak of authority, to speak of one who has authority, that, that conjures up thoughts in your own mind. Some of you, that's, that's a good thing. If you're on the younger scale of things, that's a bad thing. Because we, and I'm speaking on the younger scale, have been affected by the spirit of this age in a, in a unique way. We question everything. And often look at anyone with authority or in authority with suspicion. You are guilty until proven otherwise. Now certainly one could say, and I think rightfully so, that this is not a new phenomenon. People have been resisting authority since Adam and Eve, haven't they? Adam and Eve, they resisted authority. They rebelled against God, their creator, and, and we have inherited the, the sinful nature of Adam. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we ourselves all are rebels with a cause, right? Well, while this is true and foundational to the anti-authoritarian spirit of our age, the new vehemence against authority today, I think, can be attributed to experiences of many genuine experiences with the abuse of power. That's usually what we're, we're bucking up against. We've seen authority abused. We've seen it take advantage of people. We've seen it uh, enslave or, uh, or uh, keep people down or treat them harshly. Maybe we've seen it. Maybe we've experienced ourselves. And so that experience, or negative experience with authority, if we will, has caused us to want to reject it. I mean, we've seen authority abused, haven't we? We see it in our politics, right? Exploitation, greed, favoritism, immorality. It's as if you can do whatever you want and you will get a pass. What's even more sad is that we see the same things going on in many churches today. The reports are sickening, aren't they? If you're keeping up with the news at all, the same abuse of authority has been occurring even in the place where the people of God are supposed to be gathering. Even among those who claim to be God's representatives have done awful things to people. And in some cases, that abuse of authority has extended all the way down into the family, even the so-called Christian family. And we're hearing story after story after story of 
those who have been greatly hurt. This afternoon, I'm about to go to the Southern Baptist Convention, where one of the main topics on the agenda is going to be uh, the sexual abuse cases that have been coming out that's kind of been unearthed over the last 12 months or so. They're going to address to many pastors and leaders, we're taking nine people from our church, to address what is the widespread problem of sexual abuse and assault within our association of churches. Now, we're not the only ones. This is, is going on everywhere. It's just the, the reality is, is that we're not immune to these things. And in many cases which have surfaced, the one it's one of the pastors who's been the perpetrator. And as Christians, we certainly should be those who are crying out with the loudest voices against such abuse of power, such abuse of authority, wherever it may be found, even if it's found in our midst. But while such things may be rampant, and they are, and they're awful, Here's what I want to appeal to us this morning. The solution isn't to get rid of authority. That's not the solution. That's what many people cry for. Authority is the problem. No, bad authority is the problem. The wrong authority is the problem. The solution is to restore good authority. Good authority. Here's what Proverbs 29.2 says, and this is speaking of the authority of the king. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, that's bad authority, the people groan. And right now we're living in an age of people groaning under wicked authority. And the solution isn't anarchy. The solution is to pray and long for God's kingdom to come. The solution is to uphold God's authority, His good authority, which causes the people to rejoice. That's the solution. And as His people longing for His kingdom to come and His will to be done, we, we long for the day in which the government rests upon His shoulders. And the church will be presented to Christ spotless and without wrinkle. Pure and holy and evil will be no more. That's good authority, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Isn't it? Amen. Let's wake up. Well, not only does the world need this good news, and hasn't Satan, isn't that just his ploy he can make the, the Lord's champions, his preachers, fall, and that reflects upon God's glory, his authority, and therefore people reject the word of God and the authority that is given to them. He's wrecking havoc by calling to the question of God's authority, which has been the name of the game since Eve and Adam. Has God really said? We need to tell the world of the good news of good authority of a king who's coming, who's righteous and loving and kind, and who takes and, and heals the broken heart, heals the wounded soul. See, this cry for 
of rebellion is actually a masking of people starving for the majesty and beauty of God. They just don't know it. They just don't know it. As the Lord says through of rebellious Israel through Jeremiah, this is how he says, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Did you hear that? Israel's rebelling against authority. What are they rebelling against? They are forsaken the fountain of living waters and have hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you get the picture that that the Lord is painting here? My people have forsaken an ever-flowing of pure water Instead, they are digging in the muddy ground with a broken pot and sipping that water when right in front of them they could have fresh water that lasts forever. It's a vivid picture that we're all looking for joy, peace, happiness, gladness. The problem is we don't believe that God is the one who supplies our every need. That every good gift comes from our Heavenly Father Above. In other words, we seek to quench our deepest longings with the things that can never satisfy and never last. And what we do this morning when we're worshiping, what I'm calling us to, is to recognize that Christ is our greatest treasure and that we are to delight in Him as such, to see Him that way to love him that way, to submit ourselves under him as our good authority. And the means by which God offers himself to us, brothers and sisters, is just as we sang. He does it through the preaching of his authoritative word. Do you believe that? Do you believe that or Does the preaching of the word embarrass you? Do do you see it as the fountain of life to sustain your soul? Because as we look in 2 Timothy here, this is why Paul charges his protege to preach the word. Because the people's lives depend upon it. Depends upon it. This is what he commands them in chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word. And that word, or that term used here to preach, it means to herald, to announce, to declare. It was used of the town crier, if you will, before the age of social media and television press releases. It was was the town crier who would run through the town and make a bold announcement of the coming king and declare the good news of his imminent arrival. Oftentimes this would happen after war had happened and, and the king had gained victory. They might even tell them, you are under new leadership. And they would come, this town crier would come and announce this imminent arrival of their new king. This form of speech wasn't a conversation. It wasn't a dialogue. It wasn't merely explanation. It wasn't entertainment. 
Rather, it was an authoritative summoning. For all to give ear and every knee to bow and swear allegiance to the king. Now, if you think all authority is bad, that right there makes you feel uncomfortable. To swear allegiance to Jesus? It's a summoning. I I have no say. That's right. He is declaring through the good news, bow the knee to me. But he's a good authority. He's the one who will give you life and will give it abundantly. He's the good shepherd. And all who hear his voice, all who listen to his voice as we read, will be saved. And he will keep you forever. And no one will snatch you out of his hand, even though the wolves will come in. This type of preaching is what we see from John the Baptist at the opening of the Gospels as he was heralding the message of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was a town crier. He's coming in and saying, the king is coming. Repent, you better be ready. And when Jesus came, Jesus took the mantle, took that baton and said, I am the king. Repent and believe my message. This is what Peter, one of the apostles, did on Pentecost, who stood up in Acts 2. And it says, he lifted his voice and addressed all who dwelt in Jerusalem, saying, Would you like to follow Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? Would you want to have a conversation with me about Jesus? Let me tell you five steps to better your life. That's not what he says. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's preaching. Apostle Paul did the same as he stood in Athens, Rome, proclaiming faith in Christ and the coming judgment of God. And yet today, many churches, many pastors have forsaken the call to preaching the word of God half because it seems too authoritative doesn't it i mean what i'm doing that seems authoritative doesn't it and that that doesn't sell in our anti-authoritarian age does it but i would argue that's the very thing that will give them life if we if we switch to something else we're giving people broken pots and saying go fill water and drink from this dirty well God says, my word's a fountain of life. Drink here. We don't preach because it seems too authoritative. It seems to be an outdated medium. Many of their eyes, this just isn't practical. Are we really going to spend 25, 35, 45 minutes of our time listening to someone monologue at us you hear how that sounds in fact preaching it doesn't seem to get the people excited it doesn't pack the house we can dispense of that because what we're trying to do is worship and worship in their mind is not preaching is not what we're doing but we've been going through a series on worship we started it last sunday and we're we're continuing and 
what I've been trying to show us and we're going to continue to see is that the corporate gathering is a corporate gathering of worship. And part of our gathering is to hear the voice of the living God. That's what we're doing. And it's not a passive event. It's to be actively engaging your ears, engaging your heart, summoning you, quickening you, if you will, to pay heed to the king. Scriptures in the history of the church teaches us that preaching is indispensable to the church. It's indispensable to Christianity and to the worship of God's people. I can assure you where there is abuse of power, where that has taken place in the church, the authority of the word of God has long ago been supplanted. Oh, it may look the same. It might even come from someone who's declaring, look, I speak the word of the living God, but I can tell you any man who is abusing people like that has not put himself under that authority. He has placed himself above it. And what God is calling Chase Sears and what God is calling each one of you is to put yourself under the authority of God's word. That's what we do every Sunday when we gather. And we hear and we listen. So this morning, I want to show you from the scriptures that authoritative preaching is not only essential to our worship, but it's actually the primary means by which God makes himself known to us in order that we may enjoy him forever. Some of you use this time to go stand in the lobby, go to the restroom, go do something other than worship. And what I want you to see today is that you are starving yourself from the fresh fountain of God's grace when you do that. I want us to see that it's through the preaching of the word that we hear the very voice of Christ, our shepherd, which powerfully grants us life, lovingly shapes us in righteousness, and faithfully preserves us for glory. That's what I want us to see this morning. So as our good shepherd, Christ, authoritatively speaks to us through preaching, we see that it powerfully gives us life. I want us to see that. The basis of Paul's solemn exhortation to Timothy to preach is, is based upon the nature of God's word. Do you see that? Look in, in 3.16. Paul reminds us, he reminds Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. What a picture right there. Now, we, we've, if we've grown up in church long enough, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. It's God-breathed. But just think about the imagery there. The Scriptures find their origin from God Himself. Your breath comes straight out of your, your mouth. And what Paul is, is reminding us of is that to hear the Word of God, the inspired, God-breathed Scriptures, is actually to hear the words of God Himself. Peter says something very similar. Peter says, and he exhorts those who speak in the congregation, to do so as those who speak the oracles of God. It's 1 Peter 
Paul says something again similar to the church in Thessalonica. He says, we rejoice that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. Is that how you accept the scriptures when they're expounded to you? Or are you always saying, oh yeah, that's just the preacher spouting off? Now maybe there's good reason to say the preacher spouting off. But so much so that the word is being expounded to you, uh, presented to you, pressed into you, you are you're not receiving the words of men. You're receiving the word of God. And how is it that Paul can say that this word is at work in you who believe? It works in you. It, it's active. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Talk about authority. The words of men cannot do that. The words of men cannot get inside you. I've said this before, but I think it's, it's, it's due repeating. You may have read many books, but this is the only book that reads you. It's living and powerful and active. And God's ordained means by which it primarily is pressed into the lives of, of you is through what we're doing right now. Through the preaching of the word. And for us who sit under the heralding of this world, of this word, it breathes life into us. And just as God breathed the breath of life into Adam, as he fashioned him from the dust of the earth, and he, he leaned over and, and he breathed the breath of life into him. So the word of God, when it is preached, the breath of God is breathing life into you. That is the imagery that Paul's trying to pull from. Remember, it's Jesus who said, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I think most of us think we live by bread alone. We live like that. I live like that. And I'm the preacher. That's why we have to come back every week to be reminded that we, we keep going back to those broken pots and trying to scoop up muddy water and think, oh, man, this is where it's at. And every time we have to come here and have our minds recalibrated, I'm told, no, this is where it's at. This is where it's at. Notice this as, as, um, as Paul, notice that this is Paul's point as he reminds Timothy of his upbringing in the sacred writings in, in verses 14 and 15. He says, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. I wish we would speak of the Bible like that. The sacred writings. Are they sacred to you? Are they precious to you? Are there more to be desired than fine gold? Sweeter to your mouth than the honey of the honeycomb or a Jeff Bakery donut? Do you desire them like that? He calls Timothy, remember 
Remember that verse 15, this word, this sacred writing, it is able. It is powerful to make you wise for salvation. Paul's reminding Timothy of the power of God's word in his own life, which I think is, this is so precious. He reminds him, actually in chapter 1, of his mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, who taught him the scriptures. And many of you, you would attribute to your mother, wouldn't you? Many of you, I, I do. I've heard some of you say, I remember my mother teaching me the scriptures or my grandmother. And in Timothy's case, he's now a preacher of the word and he's, he's reminding him, you've been entrusted with a deposit even from your, your mother and your grandmother. Continue in it. Continue in it. Because this scripture that was deposited to you gave you life made you wise for salvation, and it will continue to produce salvation until Christ returns. At the end of verse 16 and into 17, Paul reminds him of why God's word is beneficial and good. Do you see that? It's all God-breathed and profitable. We want to be profitable, don't you? You want to make a profit when you have a business, right? You want good things to be yielded from it. Well, Paul says there are good things yielded from the Scripture that comes from the mouth of God. It's beneficial for you. Look at what he says. It's beneficial because it's, because it's profitable for teaching, for reproof. That's rebuking, calling something error. That's authority. That's wrong. That's what we don't like, right? That's wrong because I don't want it to be wrong, right? He goes on. Correction. That's, that's kind of the flip side of it. That's wrong. You need to do this. You correct. You, 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 you put that broken bone back in its spot. It's the wrong place where it shouldn't be. Let's put it back. It's painful. And for training in righteousness. That's the positive shaping of one's life according to Christ. It trains you up. And because the scriptures are God's life-giving words, Paul says it's sufficient. Do you see that at the end? Paul says, for the man of God, it is sufficient for his ministry, for every good work. And I think what he's talking about here is in ministry. And I'll have time to show you that, but talk to me later if you're curious. Now I want us to stop here and think about that title, man of God. It's a title. It's actually a technical term. Maybe some of your, your translations makes it the, 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 the Christian or the, uh, uh, the man or woman of God or uh, some sort of way to generalize it and flatten it to speak of everybody. I think the application's true. The scriptures equip you and make you equipped and competent for every good work as well. But Paul is using this title, man of God, in a very specific sense. It's a technical term of sorts. And it's a title used throughout the Old Testament to speak of God's spokesman. It's very specific in that way. It's used to speak of, uh, of Moses. It was attributed to Moses. It was attributed to Samuel, to David, to Elijah, and Elisha. What do all these men have in common? 
They're preachers of God's word. They're heralds of God's word. They're prophets in their day. And now Paul applies it to Timothy. And he's applying it to Timothy to make him see the weightiness of the task. You're not your own man. You're God's man. You don't get to talk about what you want to talk about. You talk about what God tells you to talk about. You preach his word. You're the man of God for this church. In Timothy's case, he's been appointed to herald God's word in the church at Ephesus. And though this church, it was founded by Paul. You might know the story in Acts. Incredible ways. People end up burning their witchcraft books and forsaking their idols, and this church was birthed. And how did that happen? Through Paul's preaching of the word, heralding of the word. And Paul is coming back, and things have gotten out of order. Error has crept in. Abuse of power has crept in. People are shipwrecking other people's faith. They're teaching what does not accord with sound doctrine. And so Paul says, Timothy, you've got to go back and put things in place. You need to set the proper authority, which is the Word of God. And that authority does not reside in you, Timothy. It's a borrowed authority. And the only authority that you have is when you speak the Word of God. That's it. And in doing so, you'll be sufficient for the task that's before you. Church family, worship is more than worship. Uh, worship is more than preaching. I want you to know that. It is. We, we've already worshiped. We've prayed. We've read. We've sung. But worship doesn't stop when the preaching starts. In fact, as we move along, it's been elevated. As we saw last week, after Solomon had expounded the promises of God, the word of God spoken to David, then the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And he accepted their worship. Church family, worship is more than preaching, but preaching that is absent will not fuel worship. Worship will not last where preaching is demoted or diminished. Preaching is actually the heartbeat of the church. It's the heart that's pumping. It's the fountain that's flowing. And it's pumping life into all that we do. Now, surely you could say, hey, we could do whatever we do, and you don't have to get up here this Sunday. That's true, but it won't last long. It won't last. Yeah, you can dam up that river, and you'll still have a lake. But you know what still water does? Bacteria begins to grow. Flowing water brings, uh, brings life. The lack of flowing water brings death. Yeah, it may last for a little bit, but you'll dry up. And the preaching is, is, the, is the, the water pump, the life pump, the, the heartbeat of the church that keeps the blood flowing through our veins of ministry for every good work that we do. And so to eliminate preaching altogether or to demote it into a TED Talk, a conversation, or even... A boring lecture. You also ever send under one of those? Boring lectures? Hopefully you're not under one of those right now. It's spiritual suicide for the church. You're saying, yeah, it just doesn't seem like it's that crucial. 
right? It doesn't seem like it's that crucial. Does really what we're doing here matter? Yeah, it does. Because this is how God is breathing life into us. When preaching is neutralized, the church demotes it, or pastors abdicate their responsibility. They've effectively closed the mouthpiece of God, which breathes life into the congregation. And for this reason, as the pulpit goes, so goes the church. It is. It's how it works. That's interesting. You can look at kind of two streams of how the pulpit's been diminished in our in our in American Christianity, and this would probably be true in anywhere. You've got the mainline denominations which hold to tradition and many good things. You could go to a liberal Protestant church. You could go to the Catholic church. And you would hear structures of liturgy just like we saw from Second Chronicles last Sunday. You would even have scripture readings of something just like John 10 that I read today. But you know what you will not hear? Authoritative preaching. And they're dead. They're dead. Oh, but you can look at another church and you can see vibrance and life and numerical growth and and all sorts of things that are occurring and, and the Word of God is minimized or is not even taught. It's just a conversation. It's a, it's a TED Talk. You all know what a TED Talk is? And some of you are like, no, no, no. Basically, it's just a nonchalant, let me share some ideas with you. Business leaders do it now. It's become very popular. It's just a conversation. Let me just share some things that are on my heart today. That type of talk. Let me tell you how we can get better. Let me do this. And There's no true authoritative word coming out in the book of revelation jesus says you have the reputation of being alive but you are dead what's the common denominator the word isn't preached and the sheep scatter and they're left to the wolves so i hope you can begin to realize why paul begins chapter four the way he does look at look at chapter four I charge you. Do you hear the seriousness of this? This is, by the way, Paul's probably last words to Timothy. He is telling him, this is the most important thing that you do. I am pleading with you. I'm charging you. I'm commanding you. Notice, in the presence of God. He's invoking God into this. And of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, Timothy, preach the word. Do you see the thrust of that? Timothy, you are in the presence of God and you will be subject to the judgment of Christ. You better be found preaching the word. That's what he's saying. That's what you are to do. And so preaching isn't optional for the man of God because it's been appointed by Christ himself to powerfully preach the scripture amongst his people for the sake of their lives. Let me say this. This is moving us on to our next point. The bulk of what I have to say is done. Such preaching is not to be done angrily or domineering. 
Rather, such preaching is to lovingly shape us into righteousness. We see that in the text. When Paul says, and here's your second point if you're taking notes, preaching lovingly shapes us in righteousness. When Paul says that the Scripture is profitable for training in righteousness, that word for trainings is the same word that's used of a father tenderly raising up their son or daughter. Jews in Hebrews, chapter 12, of God's discipline of his children. And, and we think of discipline as getting a spanking. I guess it includes that. But discipline's the constant. If you're a parent, you know this. The constant instruction and love and patience and tenderly pouring yourself out for those, for those children in your midst so they may be shaped and raised up. It's the same word he's using here. It's the word paideia. We get our, this is a Star Wars nerd term, Padawan. Yeah, Padawan. Some of you know what that is. It's the one under the Jedi who's being lovingly trained up. That's what preaching is to be. And I think some of us here all know that preaching the word. I've seen that hellfire and brimstone, that angry preacher who's sweating and huffing and puffing. And yeah, who wants to be a part of any of that? That's not attractive. That's not how I imagine Jesus was as the least in society came flocking to him. He says, you're to train them in righteousness. And so the man of God or the preacher is not to be a bully preacher, or, or as I, I sometimes call it, the angry prophet. He's just angry about everything, right? Yelling, scolding, making you feel guilty constantly. That's not loving. If you parent like that, you'll lose your kids, won't you? And that's often what many people in the church are rebelling against, a wrong authority. But that's not the authority that God lays forth for the preacher. Look at what this type of preaching looks like in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 4. These verses actually tell us what preaching is, when we should preach, how we should preach, and why we should preach. We've already kind of talked about this. We see verse 2. What are we to preach? The Word, the Scriptures, because they will give life. When should we be preaching? Regularly. And he says in season and out of season. What does he mean by that? When it's popular and when it's not. And right now, now you guys are easy. I like preaching with you all. I have fun. You all respond. You don't send me nasty emails. Let's not start, okay? But in general, it's not in season. It's not in season. And Paul's telling Timothy, you're going to have to go into a difficult situation. And your order is to preach the word. How are we to preach? This is where we're getting. Preaching from the scriptures will notice, into verse 2, it will reprove, it will rebuke, and it will exhort God's people. But notice the means, the manner by which he's to do it. With all what? Patience. This can be participation. It's not a conversation. It's participation. With all patience. And what? Teaching. Teaching takes patience, doesn't it? To truly teach. You can yell. And you can demand. And you can exercise authority in a bad way. And try to force people. Or you can patiently teach that's what preaching is to be 
But notice preaching isn't just teaching, and we'll, we'll get back to that. Preaching is to be done with all patience. And this qualification is so crucial for shaping God's people. There must be patience with us, right? None of us likes to be corrected, right? Anybody enjoy that? Anybody enjoy being rebuked and being corrected? And actually, you're out of line. You've got to be out here. No. That's why it must be done with great patience and love. If the preaching is hasty and impatient, the love of God will not come through. And I'm sure there's been times I've, I've said a word or I've spoken a harshly out of my frustration and I've lacked that patience. And, and you don't receive it then. I can tell you that. So the preaching should come with words that don't scold people out of a cold heart. Rather, like a loving parent who corrects and encourages their own child, so the preacher is to exert mercy and patience with the sheep. But also know that preaching is not devoid of teaching. There's a lot of so-called preaching that you'd say, man, that guy's just so patient and kind and merciful and, and, and gracious, but you don't learn anything, right? Sounds great, but you're ne you never learn. Oh, but it's got a Bible verse. Is he explaining that Bible verse? Or is he just reading it? Notice God didn't just give us Bibles to read. He gave us preachers to understand our Bibles when we read. That's how it's always been. God gave Moses the Word, and then Moses preached and explained the Word. David does the same thing. Ezra and Nehemiah, they recover the Word. They didn't just say, hey, here you go, have at it. And no, you won't read it. <laughs> you need someone to expound the Word, to teach you the Word. And so we don't just teach, though. We exhort. Exhort. We press that teaching in your life. That's the difference. I mean, some of you just came from my Sunday school class. I'm much more animated in here than I am up there. Why? Because I'm just teaching. I'm a little more relaxed. But in here, I'm trying to press. I'm trying to motivate. I'm trying to stir you up. I'm pumping the heart as hard as I can. Shocks. And some of you are still lifeless. That's what preaching is. It's exhortation with an authoritative call to what? To worship Christ. I'm appealing to you. Love Christ through His Word, and I'm showing you that because the authority doesn't rest in me. I'm showing you it's here. Do you see it? That's what I'm trying to do. In fact, that's what I try to do every time I preach. Just so you know, I prepare probably between 12 to 15 hours a week for every sermon. Why, why do I spend so much time? Working on the sermon. It's because I need to worship. And so the picture here is I am studying and observing the text meticulously. I'm, I'm meditating and I'm chewing on it. I'm praying through it. I'm doing all those things until my heart leaps in worship. And my study, 
or sometimes it clicks when I'm walking around or I'm driving to visit somebody or go into a meeting. I'm meditating, chewing, because I'm like, Lord, help me see, help me see. Yes, I know what that means, but my heart's not there. And what happens is I continue to work kind of like with a machete, and I am chopping away the brush as I work up this hill, and eventually I break through and I see that beautiful landscape, and I say, oh, it's worth it. This is beautiful. And you know what I do, what I'm doing right now? On Sunday morning, I run down that hill, and I come to you all at the bottom, and I say, hey, guys, I've spent the last 15 hours chopping away so we can get to the top of the mountain in 45 minutes. Come with me. That's what I'm doing. So you don't have to chop it. So you don't get weary and say, I'm out. No, just come on. And I I tell you, hey, we're almost there. And I'm showing you some things along the way. So that you too and we'd all stand and we worship. That's what preaching is to be. All right, where am I? might be 50 minutes today okay that that, this mountain was a little bit taller why should we preach I mean this is pretty self-explanatory in verses three and four because without it the people will not endure sound teaching but they will pile up or accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions there it is Timothy, the time's coming when people are going to wander away from sound teaching. That word sound is, is where we get our word hygiene, healthy teaching. Healthy teaching. You want healthy teaching, right? If you're eating Sour Patch Kids every day, man, that tastes good. But you know what happens after I eat a bag of those things? And I'm talking about the big jumbo bag. I'm not talking about the little one. I love them, but that, that sugar wears on my taste buds, and it causes it to burn, and then I have a funny taste in my mouth. And then when I try to eat something good, it's not as good because my taste buds have been desensitized. And that's what happens to many Christians. They're eating bags of Sour Patch Kids on Sunday morning, and yet they have no appetite for the things of God. And so for this reason, Paul charges Timothy to continue preaching the word. Why? Because without it, we'll wander. People don't wander into truth. You don't just accidentally stumble upon it. You wander into error. Truth, this is why preaching is the way it is, it confronts you, doesn't it? Truth has to confront you, has to seize you, take hold of you. Truth is truth. It's like an anchor. It's like a rock. Boom, it's right there. But error, just kind of drift off into it. This is why we need preaching every week to kind of just shock us back into gear. To point us to the rock. So preaching, it's actually to build up your immune system. To build up your immune system to ward off threats of error. Sound preaching keeps us from putting our, our walk with Jesus in neutral. Because I'm never, the Word of God, I is not the right term here, the Word of God's never satisfied with where we are. 
right? So every Sunday you're being pushed somewhere. And all of us, all of us, me included, I want to just click it in neutral. But the problem is, is that once we put it in neutral, the currents of this present age just drift us off. So we've always got to have it in gear, and that's what preaching does. It forces us to have it in gear. All right, finally, preaching preserves us for glory. You see that at the end? As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He's telling them to endure. Follow my footsteps. He goes on, he says, for me... I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. I'm about to die. I'm offering my life in worship. And the time of my departure have come. I fought the good fight, Timothy. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. And what's laid up for me, the crown of righteousness. Paul's telling Timothy, keep preaching the word. There, there's something, that a grace for me, I, I have to spend 15 hours plus a week in the Word, which keeps me. There's, there's, there's a blessing to that. It, it preserves me. And it allows me to spill it out to you. And Paul's telling Timothy, you, you cannot forsake that, that duty. Because the Word, the ministry of the Word, and what you will do in their lives will preserve you. He says it very clearly in 1 Timothy 4. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. The Word of God preserves us. And it preserves us until His appearing. And that reward of the crown of righteousness, it's, just not, it's not just for the preacher, brothers and sisters. It's for, you see that last phrase? but for all who have loved his appearing. The preaching is to push the love of Christ into you and stir your heart so that you love his appearing and you'll finish the race. We get to the top of that mountain peak. I say, look at the beautiful landscape. And I say, you see those mountaintops? Those are the next ones. Let's go. That's what we're doing. And some of us, I'm tired. I don't think I can do that again. All right, I'll let me go up that mountain. I'll come back and get you. And some of us are further along than others. Some of us can hike. Some of us have to carry somebody. And we're reminding them as we're walking down the road, here's what the Word says, finish the race. Trust Him. Now you might be saying, I thought I'm preserved by faith. Paul even says, I kept the faith. Well, how is faith produced in you? Well, faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. All right, I'm going to close with this. Here's a, um, I think this is tongue in cheek. I'm not suggesting you all do this, but I think it highlights in a vivid way the importance that God's people should hold for the preacher. And here's what one individual Christian wrote about their pastor. It's a little dated, but I think you'll, you'll get the point. Fling him into his office. Tear the office sign from the door and nail on the sign, study. Take him off the mailing list. Lock him up with his books and his typewriter and his Bible. Slam him down on his knees before texts and broken hearts and the flock of God. 
Force him to be the one man in our overindulged communities who knows about God. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God all night through and let him come out only when he's bruised and beaten into being a blessing. Shut his mouth forever from spouting remarks and stop his tongue forever from tripping lightly over every non-essential. Require him to have something to say before he dare break the silence. Bend his knees in the lonesome valley. Burn his eyes with weary study. Wreck his emotional poise with worry for God. And make him exchange his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Rip out his telephone. Burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets. Put water in his gas tank. Give him a Bible and tie him to the pulpit and make him preach the word of the living God. Test him, quiz him, examine him, humiliate him for his ignorance of things divine. Shame him for his good comprehension of finances, batting averages, and political infighting. Laugh at his frustrated effort to play psychiatrist. Form a choir and raise a chant. Haunt him with it night and day. Sir, we would see Jesus. When at long last he dares attempt the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God. If he does not, then dismiss him. him, uh, Tell him you can read the morning paper and digest the television commentaries and think through the day's superficial problems and manage the community's weary enterprises and bless the sorted baked potatoes and green beans ad finitum better than he can. Command him not to come back till he's read and reread, written and rewritten, until he can stand up, worn and forlorn, and say, Thus says the Lord. Break him across the board of his will, ill-gotten popularity. Smack him hard with his own prestige. Corner him with questions about God. Cover him with demands for celestial wisdom. And give him no escape until his back's against the wall of the word. And sit down before him and listen to the only word he has left, God's word. Let him be totally ignorant of the downstreet gossip and give him a chapter and order him to walk around it, camp on it, sup with it, and come at last to speak it backward and forward until all he says about it rings with the truth of eternity. And when he's burned out by the flaming word, when he's consumed at last by the fiery grace blazing through him, and when he's privileged to translate the truth of God to man, finally transferred from heaven to earth, then bear him away gently and blow a muted trumpet, and lay him down softly. Place a two-edged sword in his coffin, and raise the tomb triumphant. For he was a brave soldier of the word, and before he died, he had become a man of God. Let's pray.